Well, open your Bibles to the book of Ephesians, chapter 1, this morning. I'm going to have two key passages uh, that we'll look at. We'll look at a bunch of scripture, but two key ones that we'll focus on. <laughs> I leaned over to Betty about 9 o'clock Friday evening, and I'm like, he's, he's, he's just preached two-thirds of my sermon on Sunday. So if you were here Friday night, you can just slip out, really. Because by the end of the evening, he had covered it all. So uh, we're talking these three weeks about the Bible and the importance of the Bible. And uh, again, I want to I wanna press in and ask you this question. It's been applied all along. But I want to ask you, do you get up in the morning and get your Bible out and listen to God before you start your day? And if not, and you're a Christian, why not? It depends whose statistics you look at. Uh, but somewhere between, they say that somewhere between five, you, you receive between five and 16,000 messages a day. So you're on your smartphone, uh, you're, you're watching the news, or you're getting the news on your phone. You're talking to people. Uh, you're getting messages at work. You're getting messages at school. Get me- messages in your family. So somewhere between five and sixteen thousand messages a day. And how many of those messages are true? How many of those messages are biblically based? You have to go to. It's not enough even to go to books about the Bible. Go to the Bible itself because. The message you hear there is one you won't hear anywhere else unless it's been reinterpreted by someone who's gotten it there in the first place. And God wants so much to get our ear. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. If you don't get anything else out these three weeks, get that. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. So last uh, or next week, we're going to talk about <clears throat> God's message of watch out. So each of these messages begins with, and God said, so next week, and God said, watch out. We're going to talk about the warnings in Scripture. And last week we talked about, and God said, I love you. The overarching message of Scripture is that God's saying to the people that he's made, I love you. The problem is that's not the, that's not the end of that message. That's the beginning of that message. And most of us are aware of people who say, I, I know that God loves me. And that means X. The problem is when they say X, you go, wait, wait, that's not true from Scripture. How many of you have ever had your kids tell you or imply by their behavior, if you loved me, you would let me do whatever I want, right? If you loved me, you would let me do whatever I want. Uh, You parents of young children, that's coming down the road. They're going to get there. If you love me, you would let me do whatever I want. And so some people think that about God. God loves me, and therefore that means anything. But today we're going to move on from that and kind of build on that statement from last week. This week's message, and God said, I forgive you. I forgive you. Now, I've had the experience... Uh, in my ministry years where people come up to me and they say, Pastor Keith, I just want you to know I forgive you. And of course, the, init- the instinctive question ev- everybody has when somebody does that to them is, what I do? 
right? You, you don't forgive someone or you don't offer forgiveness to someone unless there's been some sort of offense, some sort of slight. And so, you know, when people say that to me, I'm like, well, what did I do? What did I, what did I say? And in some cases, it turns out that I really did something wrong I wasn't aware of. Or maybe I did something that was all right, but it had, a, it had an impact on that person in a way that I didn't intend, whether it was something I said or did. So the automatic question that we should ask when someone says, I forgive you, is what did we do? Because the Bible speaks a lot about forgiveness. And when we read the word forgive, we should say, what, what did I do? If God's offering forgiveness, what went wrong? All right, let's pray, and then we're going to read just a single verse in Ephesians 1. Father, we worship you and give you the praise that is due your name today. Well, at least we try to give you the praise due your name. We confess that we're... Our praise is contaminated in many ways by our hearts, by our perceptions, by our reservations. And we long for the day when we stand in your presence and really can give you the praise undiluted, undamaged, uncontaminated praise that is due your name. And we praise you not only because you made us, you fashioned us with your hands, but because you have loved us with an everlasting love and you have made it possible for the fullness of your love to be manifest to us as forgiven people. That blows me away. And the longer I am in Christ the more deeply I see and feel my sin and more deeply I am filled with joy and thankfulness for your forgiveness. And my prayer is that we would get just a, a little bit greater glimpse today of just how far in our own natural state we are from you and yet how close you bring us when we say yes to Christ. That we would leave here, um, as Tim Keller says, both recognizing how, a, a little bit more, how awful we are, and a lot more, how loved we are. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me for the reading of the word of God? Ephesians chapter one, verse seven. Now, if you have a more literal translation than I do, um, this is going to seem cut off because we're just going to read verse 7, and the text really is verse 7, 8, 9, and 10. It's just a single sentence. Paul loved run-on sentences. He is so rich, God is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. I'm going to read that again. I'd like to invite you to read it with me out loud. Read it from the screen uh, so that we're all in the same translation. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. 
This is the word of God. You may be seated. That last word there is where we're going to hang out for a while. Sins. Our sins. And this is an important qualification to what we said last week. That the overarching message of the scriptures is God saying to us, I love you. But just like, just like with our children, that doesn't mean that anything goes and it doesn't mean that there might not be a problem with our child. And there is a problem with the ones that God has made. My first point, not everyone that God loves will be forgiven. Not everyone that God loves will be forgiven. I want you to say that with me because I want that to be uh, ingrained in our minds. Not everyone God loves will be forgiven. An ancient temple in Delphi in Greece had an inscription at the top. It's often attributed to Socrates, but it was long before him. It says, know thyself. Know thyself. Question for you. Do you? You might say, well, yeah, I know myself. I know what my personality's like. I know what I, I do for a job. I know my responsibilities in the home. I know who my family is, my, uh, my ethnicity, my national background. I, I know this, I know that. But do you know yourself really? One of the things I, I've discovered over the years of ministry is that it seems like we are broken down into two kinds of people. Those of us who think too much of ourselves and those of us who think too little of ourselves. We vary by degrees in there, but my guess is that you, can, you just positioned yourself in one of those categories. I either tend to think too much of myself or I tend to think too little of myself. Now, one of the mistakes that we can make in the Christian faith is to try... When people tell us things about themselves that, you know, like, I'm a horrible person or I'm, um, you know, they're, they're kind of poor me, poor me, and we try to build them up. But from the biblical vantage point, from the Christian vantage point, there's a lot to be said to let people feel the badness of their condition. Because you really don't have any interest in the solution unless you feel the intensity of the problem. If, you're, if your brakes are going out, I mean, you don't know it. You're not going to bother to take the car into the garage. But if you knew that on three days from now, somebody in your family is going to be driving your car and they're going to go to push, push the brake pedal and nothing's going to happen, you take it into the garage, right? If you know that you have a problem that is eternal in nature. You want to get it taken care of. And we should feel the same way about others. The, the, the issue of sin is not simply a, an issue of a 
kind of like a mistake. You know, if your child spills a glass of milk or they're reaching for something high on a shelf and they knock something glass down off the shelf and it shatters on the ground, you don't don't discipline them for that. Hope you don't. Why? It's a mistake. Might have been clumsy. They might have not have gotten a stool than they should have, but it was a mistake. It's an oops. Sin. It's misguided to speak of sin as a mistake. It's misguided to speak of him as um, something I didn't intend to do. By the way, did you know that in the Old Testament, there were certain sacrifices that were designed for unintentional sins? So that when you came to realize what you had done back here, there's a sacrifice for that. Sin is a, a poison. It's a toxin. It will kill. The most poisonous snake in the world is found in Australia. It's called an inland saipan, like the island of Saipan. And if you get bit by it, there will be enough venom injected into your body from that one bite that would be able to kill a hundred full-grown men. Sin's not just a minor issue. It's not something to wink at. It's it's not something to say, "Eh, I'll try to do better the next time. It's something that will kill you. Romans chapter 10. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3. Beginning of verse 10. Puts us all in the same category. It says, no one is righteous, and maybe underline no one in your Bible, not even one, underline even one. No one is truly wise, no one is seeking God. Do you ever think about that statement when you read through your Bible? No one is seeking God. He comes seeking after us. There's all kinds of things that God does before we ever say yes to Christ. And, and, And it just... Mm. This is the kind of thing that fuels my praying. I just can't get over this kind of thing, that God chose me, that God convicted me of sin. This is all before I came to Christ, that he called me, Romans 8, that he uh, regenerated me, Titus 3, 4, and 5, before I ever said yes to, to Jesus. He's, if you're in Christ, he sought you out before you ever thought about seeking him. It's not our instinct. All have turned away. All have become useless. Verse 12, no one does good, not a single one. I mean, it's this everybody. This is all of us. We're all in the same boat. And Paul's maybe afraid that we're not going to get the message. So later on in the chapter, he nails it again. Verse 23, all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. You're worse than you think you are. I'm worse than I think I am. Sin is so outrageous that it separates us from God. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your sins have separated you from God. Big gap. Now, the great challenge, I think, especially for those of us who have grown up in Christian homes. I'm just curious. How many of you grew up in a Christian home? Those of you in the auditorium here. So I'm speaking to us especially. 
And so we have a bad habit of comparing ourselves and our goodness and badness with people that are worse than us. We don't usually compare ourselves to people that we think are better than us. Compare ourselves to the guy in death row. We compare ourselves to the, to the pedophile. We compare ourselves to the embezzler. Compare ourselves to the guy that's cheating on his wife. And we look at ourselves and we're like, I'm not that bad. And unless you feel the poison, the massive poison of sin, you can in the quiet moments of your night convince yourself, I'm not even sure I really needed Jesus. We had a, I think we still have it around somewhere, that had a video series that some of our small groups did 20, probably 23 years ago or so. And it was on evangelism. And the video was a vignette each week of a small group that was doing the same thing that our groups were doing in studying this video series, talking about how to make disciples in our community. And each week there was a, a, another piece of the story. And so it starts out, this small group is talking about how can we be more intentional about reaching people for Jesus Christ. And as the weeks go on, each one of the members of this small group is, is making, uh, getting acquainted with someone that they hadn't known before. And one of the main characters in this story is Jerry, who is a neighbor to the couple that's hosting the small group in their home. And Jerry is a profane, loud, uh, vulgar kind of guy, doesn't really know boundaries real well. And as the weeks transpire, the husband in this relationship, in, in the marriage, is building a relationship with Jerry, getting to know him well. They're starting to go fishing together and so forth. And about week six, things are, push is starting to come to shove. And this woman is so fed up with Jerry. And they're talking in this meeting that night about the different people that they're talking with about Jesus. <clears throat> and this woman is talking about how she can't, she can't put up with Jerry, can't stand Jerry. And one of the other guys in the group said, but Linda, Jerry needs Jesus just like you need, just like I need Jesus, is what he said. Jerry needs Jesus just like I needed Jesus. To which Linda said, Jerry may need Jesus like you needed Jesus, but I have never needed Jesus like Jerry needs Jesus. And you see, that's where we get when we do not plumb the depths of our sinfulness and how God feels about it. See, there's no small sins. James says in James 2, verse 10, and he was speaking to mostly to Jewish people, and so he was especially highlighting the law of Moses. He said, but it really could have been applied to all of us, whatever is right or wrong. If you keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, you have become guilty of all. 
Now, by that, he doesn't mean that if you've told a lie, you suddenly become a murderer. It doesn't mean that if you have pride in your life, which we all do, that you have suddenly become a pedophile. This is what he does mean. In God's eyes, you are as guilty as the pedophile. In God's eyes, you are as guilty as the murderer. In God's eyes, you are as guilty as the embezzler. There's no small sins in God's eyes. Because the problem with you and the problem with me in our relationship to God is that he is holy and we are not. You might be a little unholy or a lot unholy, but it doesn't matter. Prophet Habakkuk says in chapter 1, verse 13, your eyes, are too, your eyes are too pure of God. Speaks of God. Your eyes are too pure to look on sin. And not only are God's eyes too pure to look on sin, but he is bound by his holiness and his justice to judge any and all sin. The other prophet that prophesied to Nineveh, other than Jonah, prophet Nahum, said this, if I can find him. Chapter one, verse three, the Lord is slow to get angry but his power is great and he never lets the guilty go unpunished. So if you are a sinner, period, of any stripe, he never lets the guilty go unpunished. A holy God, a just God, must judge sin and sinners. So your sin and my sin puts God in a quandary. How can he love you? How can he love me? And yet be just. How can he be holy, see my sin, and yet be just? In other words, the the justice that God's holiness demands is that you and I pay for our sins. The wages of sin is COVID. The wages of sin is a financial reversal. What does it say in the Bible? Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. So how can God love us, spare us the consequences of our sin? You have to feel the depth of sin if you're going to know the joy of forgiveness. Second point, through Christ, God offers forgiveness to all he loves. Let me reread Ephesians again. Ephesians 1, 7. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom. Your more literal translations say redemption. That's the story of what Hosea did when his, his wife had left him prostituted herself, sleeping around with all kinds of men. She ends up having no place to live, no money, and God tells her ex-husband, you go down to the marketplace where she's being auctioned off. You take your wallet and you buy her back. 
because that's what I'm going to do to Israel. And in Christ, that's what he's done for you. Purchased our freedom with the blood of his son, doesn't say with our good works, with the blood of his son, and forgave our sins. Doesn't say forgave some of our sins. Doesn't say he forgave the, the easiest ones to forgive. He forgave our sins, period. See why we have to go back to the Bible? Only the Bible has the good news. Last year, George Barna, who's kind of the research guru in the Christian world, every year he's assessing where Christianity is in America, or maybe put differently, where Americans are when it comes to Christianity. And he not only takes the pulse of Christians, but he takes the pulse of the culture as well. And he found out that last year, about half, just shy of half of all Americans believe that if they do enough good things and avoid the worst bad things, that when they die, if there is a God, they're going to be with him. 48% of Americans. Now, I've always, had the, I've always taken the approach that I don't expect people who are unredeemed to act like redeemed people. I don't expect people who are unredeemed to think like redeemed people. But here's where it gets worse. Of the people who say, the Americans who say, American adults, who say they're Christians, almost half of them think that they are reconciled to God by what they do. 46% of Pentecostals, 44% of mainline Protestants, 70% of Roman Catholics, and the crowd that we represent, evangelical Christians, 41%. 41% of people in churches whose doctrinal teachings are exactly opposite of that. That say that you are reconciled with God solely through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's what the Bible says. And according to the Bible's own testimony, Paul's words in Galatians 1, that's a, that's a distorted gospel. That's a different gospel than the New Testament teaches. And it's a gospel contrary to what's been given us. In fact, Paul is so upset about this different gospel that was being circulated in the southern Galatian churches that he says anyone who believes that gospel anyone who teaches that gospel let him be in the word in your Bibles most of your Bibles is let him be cursed I'll spell it out for you it's literally the word damned why because that person is being responsible for people going to hell if you are banking on what you do or don't do, that's not a jet that's going to take you to your destination. 
He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Again, Paul in Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We know that a person is made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. When Jesus was trying to convince the people of his day when he was here on earth, uh, convince them that he was the answer to their problem. And after he had, he had uh, given the people the food, you know, it came from a small lunch and he ended up feeding tens of thousands of people with it. He went away and the people went looking for him the next day, like, got to find Jesus, got to find this guy who fed us. And when they got to him, Jesus said, you're looking for me for the wrong reasons. You're looking for me because I fed you. And they wanted to change the subject. They said, tell us what we, we should do to do the works of God. We want to do, you're doing the works of God. We want to do the works of God. What should we do to do them? And Jesus said, the work of God is this. One, one word, one work. To believe in the one that God has sent. John chapter 6, verses 28 and 9. Believe in the one God has sent. Believe in Jesus. Believe in me. That's amazing to me. I, I mean, I've said before, I, the more I saturate myself with what the Bible says about me and what it says about me being forgiven in Christ, I, I will never get over this. Forgiveness has been offered me and it's offered you. Not by because we start to go to church, not because I feel bad about the things I've done, not because we're trying harder, but forgiveness is offered you, forgiveness is offered me <laughs> totally by abandoning all hope in ourselves. All hope in ourselves and trusting in Christ. And if you're here this morning or you're watching this morning and you're not a Christian, uh, maybe you would say about like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? If you realize you've got a problem, what's the solution? What must I do to be saved? I'm going to give you an acronym, A-T-E-8. First of all is admit Jesus is offered to you, Jesus offers to forgive you solely on the basis of you admitting your sin. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.15 that the Son of God came for the purpose of sinners, saving sinners. That's why he came. He didn't just come to teach you how to behave better. By the way, without him, you can't really behave better. All your external behaviors are mixed with polluted motives, you know, it's impure. It's the reason that Isaiah says all of our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It's because it's, it's just not pure. If I do something good, oftentimes it's because I want to impress you. If I avoid something bad, it's because I don't want the consequences to go with something bad. Admit you're a sinner. That's our basic identity, you know. Everybody has an identity conflict these days, right? Eric Erickson, one of Floyd, uh, Freud's disciples, coined that phrase back in the early 1900s, identity crisis. 
He thought that was one of the most important things about us. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. Because most of us never get to the important crisis. That's not fair. Many Americans never get to the important crisis. I'm a sinner. Most important crisis. That's my basic identity. And then the solution for that is T, turn from sin and trust Christ. President Obama was in India back in uh, 2015, I think it was, speaking to the Indian people in New Delhi. And he made this statement. He says, we are all children of God. And that's commonly said today. Elton John says it. Senator Barbara Boxer says it. Even Pope Francis says it. We're all children of God. The Bible disagrees. This is what the apostle says, John chapter 1, verse 12. But to all who believed him, Jesus, and accepted him, Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Solution to sin is turn from sin. The Bible uses the word repent. Turn from sin and trust Christ. Some have said that's like the two sides of the same coin. I'm turning from sin to Christ, meaning I'm trusting him to do what I can't, to forgive me of my sins. Oh, brothers and sisters, if you're, if you're a child of God, and you know, you can, if you're not a child of God, you can just say that right now in your head. You can write it out on a piece of paper this afternoon or even now. God reads minds, God hears voices, God, God can read. <laughs> and if you admit your sin and say, I turn from it, I trust Christ. Instant, I, instant. There's no, there's no probationary period. You are instantly this child of God, fully forgiven, fully forgiven of past, present sins and future sins. Doesn't mean we don't continue to ask forgiveness, but there's a kind of forgiveness that makes us right with God and takes care of all our sins. And there's a forgiveness that we need daily for continued fellowship with God, the sweetness of the fellowship. It's just like my wife and I, you know, if there's a dust up, you know, we're still married, but there's, this, this, there's a friction in our communication and our affections for one another. But the forgiveness, when we turn from sin and turn to Christ, that forgiveness is, is comprehensive, makes us right with God in an instant. And the E of A-T-E is enjoy. Oh, brothers and sisters, you should enjoy your, your fellowship with God through Jesus Christ. It should bring you happiness. C.J. Mahaney says in his little book, uh, the, the Cross-Centered Life, he says, as I've gotten older, he says, I've, I've gotten to see the ugliness of my sin in greater and greater fashion. It, it, it just becomes worse to me. And... On the flip side is I, I run to him more quickly now than I used to in the wake of sin and seek forgiveness. And also I enjoy the aftermath of that more quickly. When I was, uh, before I came to Christ, I, was, I thought I was a Christian, I wasn't. I remember when I would sin, I would, I would I'd call it Protestant penance. I would feel guilty for like three days. I just felt like that's what God was asking of me. I need to really feel bad for three days. And then we can kind of go on with our relationship. 
Man, when you are in Christ and you ask God's forgiveness, boom, freedom, delight, and joy. Forgiveness is offered to us, though, at great personal cost. I remember the day that Pastor Charlie and I were driving back from a county courthouse, and we had been in a hearing. Um, if you've been here a while, you know we had a, a huge embezzlement, probably, I don't know, 18 years ago, something like that, upwards of close to $100,000. And so the person responsible was at uh, the sentencing, and we had gone to testify there. And on the way home, I asked Pastor Charlie, I said, do you think that our people at Keystone really understand grace? And he said, I think they understand that it's, you know, this thing that God gives them and that we receive it. He said, I'm not always sure that we understand the cost to God. And I, uh, I, this is probably not the right word, but I love the story in Genesis 22. And I don't know, the story of Abraham and Isaac, I don't know about you if you're a dad or a mom, but I can never get through that story without weeping. And, and I have, <laughs> I've told God countless times since I've read that story, God, I couldn't do that. You tell me to kill my son, Travis, Cameron? No. I would not have gotten up that morning. I would not have saddled the donkey. I would not have loaded it with wood. I would not have taken my son. I had a man one time tell me, he said, I can't believe in your God in the Bible. He said, that story about him asking Abraham to kill his son, he said, what kind of God could do that? And I said, there's an answer to that. And I'll be happy to share it with you if you're interested. He's, he wasn't. And the answer to that is this. One, God stopped Abraham before he killed his son. But he put that story in there, not only to tell us how he tested Abraham, but to show us the magnitude of what he was going to do 2,000 years later. Because in that day, God did not provide another ram from the thicket. On that day, he did not stop his own hand. He did not interfere with the soldiers who were whipping Jesus. For those that put a crown on thorns on his head. He didn't stop when they drove the nails in his hand. Never forget the glory of the forgiveness that you receive in Jesus Christ came at a very expensive cost to the Father. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ saving sinners is so glorious. So needed. And this is my last point. And this is really what 
part of what David was speaking about all of Friday evening. Everyone that God forgives. So just stop there. Is that you? Have you been forgiven? Then if you have, the rest applies to you. Everyone God forgives is to make disciples. Not just the kind of zealots in the church. The radicals. The people who are willing to sell everything and move to a primitive context. Raise their kids there. Everyone that God forgives, every Christian, every believer, is to make disciples. Luke chapter 24, verse 47. Jesus has come back from the dead. And he is talking about his own death, burial, and resurrection. He's talking about the gospel. And he says this in verse 47. It was also written that this message, meaning the gospel message, would be proclaimed in the authority of his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. Doesn't matter what language they speak. Doesn't matter what nationality or ethnic group they are part of. Doesn't matter their social status. Doesn't matter their age. Doesn't matter what they've done or haven't done. There is forgiveness of sins for all who will repent. So this is the Bible's assignment. Again, another reason we have to go back to the Bible again and again. We're not going to get this elsewhere. That we have been forgiven Not just to be forgiven, but forgiven to proclaim forgiveness. We are to make other disciples. Everything from sharing our our faith, proclaiming the gospel, to helping the new Christian grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. As Hudson Taylor, the great missionary to China, used to say, the Great Commission is not an option to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. And not everybody's going to pack up and leave. Vast majority of us won't. Some will go, but all of us will send. Meaning we are praying for those who are going. We are praying for places where no one has gone to yet. It's all of what is about Friday night, the unreached people of the world. Are you partnering with somebody who's going to the unreached parts of the world? Are you praying and interceding for the unreached people of the world? Joshua Project tracks the unreached people of the world. You can get a little app for your phone and download it, and every day it'll pop up a new unreached people group that you can pray for. 60 seconds, you can pray for them. So if you're not going, if I'm not going, we can give and we can pray. By the way, if you want to support one of our global partners who is somewhere, has gone somewhere, um, you want to support them personally, you support them through your giving to the church, but I'm in favor of everybody having one or two individuals that you're personally supporting. I think that really helps you get a feel for God's work in that part of the world and for the need there. The more you're exposed to the need, the more you can no longer live the conventional Christian life in America. 
And if you start traveling, it, it will just ruin you forever. I need to wrap up. Um, so if you are an unbeliever, just let me just recap. Admit you're a sinner and then turn from sin and trust Christ and tell him and he'll make you a new creation. And then enjoy what God gives you. If you're a believer today, let me ask you this question. Do you enjoy your forgiveness? Or is it ho-hum? Do you enjoy your forgiveness or is it like, eh? There is a direct link between you and I realizing, recognizing, and continuing to recognize just what God has done for us in Christ. Listen to this in 1 Peter chapter, I'm sorry, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 9. Now earlier in the chapter, the Apostle Peter has been talking about the kind of growth should be happening in the believer's life. Spiritual growth. So he's talking about um, supplement your faith with a, verse five, supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence, um, become more knowledgeable in the things of the Lord, uh, more self-controlled in your life and patient endurance and, and godliness and brotherly affection and loving everybody. And you, you can't do any of that on your own. Need the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. But there's a very practical concern that Peter has here in verse nine. Those who, fail who de- those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind, forgetting, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins, their past sins. In other words, Peter's argument is that the intensity with which we recognize our sinfulness, because sinfulness shapes how we think about our forgiveness, those two things will determine our delight in the gospel, probably even our passing off and proclaiming the gospel, as well as our own personal development. It's vital that we remember, never forget, remember, remember, remember that we have been cleansed from past sins. So if your sinfulness is ho-hum, then your reaction to your forgiveness will be ho-hum as well. If you feel the breadth and the depth and the wickedness of your sin, then our forgiveness becomes glorious. So here's my, here's my um, maybe concluding admonition for you. So when I pray in the morning, first things I start with, before I start with intercession, is worship and confession. And one of the things that I pray routinely is, God, help me to see my sin. And I pray that for two reasons. One, because of this. I want to feel the, the impact of my sin. And the other is because I'm desperately afraid as I ruminate on my past day that I'm missing sin. And to me, that would be tragic because the more I see my sin, the more I can rejoice in my forgiveness. And the less sin I see, the less forgiveness I feel I need. So an admonition to you who know Christ is to say, God, help me to see 
my sin. Not so that I can wallow in what an awful person I am, but so that I can see how gloriously I have been forgiven. Father, we praise your holy name for the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Hallelujah. I pray for those maybe this morning who who admitted that they were sinners and turned and trusted Christ just in a moment during this message. I pray for them, Lord, to enjoy their forgiveness and for someone, maybe one of us, to help them grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, to disciple them so that they can be not only a disciple but a disciple who makes disciples as well. And I pray for all of us who have been forgiven by Christ. Oh, God, that we would, we would flee any thought of works righteousness that we somehow can be made right with you through the stuff we do and don't do and instead grab hold ever more tightly to the forgiveness that we have by the blood of Christ we pray in Jesus matchless name